I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that it's here for us to glean from. And so, in particular, that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life. I thank you for this book. I pray that you will use it to impact our lives. In your name, amen. Well, there was a group of seniors sitting around a coffee shop talking about all of their ailments. Oh, my arms have become so weak I can hardly lift this cup of coffee. Oh, yes, I know. My cataracts are so bad I can't even see my coffee. And another one said, I couldn't even mark the X at the election time because my hands are so disabled. What? Speak up. What? I can't hear you, said one elderly lady. Another one said, I can't turn my head because of the arthritis in my neck. And everybody agreed, that's awful. And then another, my blood pressure pills make me so dizzy. Another person said, "I I forget where I am and where I'm going. I guess that's the price we pay for getting old, winced an old man as he slowly shook his head. And the others all nodded in agreement. Well, count your blessings, said one lady. Thank God we can all still drive. (laughs) And we know that's a fact when we're out on the roads, right? Hello. Anyways, well, as you recall, John has written a short letter to address the issue of assurance of salvation. And the way he's gone about it is by giving several tests for believers to evaluate their lives. And John has uh, presented these tests, whether it's behavior or brotherly love or the belief in the truth of who Jesus really is. So John repeats these tests as the book goes on. And sometimes he adds a little more information, and sometimes it's to emphasize a point. So as we finished uh, chapter 2, we saw that those who have been born of the Father have the Father's nature in them, and so they are to behave like him. So those who pursue obedience to God in their attitudes and their actions give evidence that they have been born into God's family. So let's get started. Again, I want to thank my husband's commentaries and his notes for helping me prepare. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we read, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. What is so meaningful here is the truth that it is the Father's love that makes possible for us to be his child. And John wants us to give our attention to that amazing truth that the Father's love has been bestowed upon us to make us his own. In the Greek, the thought is one of astonishment, one of amazement. This is completely foreign to anything really in the human realm. There is nothing like this kind of love on planet Earth. If you have been the parent of a rebellious children, a rebellious child and dealt with the difficulties of rotten attitudes, you can only start to imagine the truth that God would actually love rebellious people like you and me and then love us enough to make us his own. We once despised him. We were children of wrath. We only cared about ourselves, and yet he loved us. What a great example of how we're to love the unlovely. And those who have come uh, by faith and put their confidence in Jesus alone as the only way to be forgiven, they are truly his children. And this kind of love is simply, as I said, foreign to the world. How often we are careless and take it for granted, ladies, that we are so loved by the Father. 
the aged apostle John, he was still excited about his salvation and he was still in awe that God loved him. We should never take for granted this reality, but should have an ongoing joy that we are so loved. And, you know, think about it when everything else is really awful in life. We rejoice in this reality when we come to, to God by faith. However, the world does not understand the changes and the change of direction in our life. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world did not recognize Jesus at his first coming. And because they hated him, they also hate his followers. So as we grow in our faith and find ourselves having completely different goals, different forms of entertainment, different interests than that of the world, they think we're crazy. They think we're fools. They hate truth. They hate righteousness. They hate standards that are absolute set by God. Therefore, we're not to be surprised that unbelieving friends or family are not pleased or so thrilled uh, with this kind of love that makes no sense to them. But for the believer, we see another amazing truth about being his child. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We will see him just as he is. Can't wait for that day. So whether your friends or family recognize it or not, the moment we believe, we become his child. And as his child, we don't really know as yet all what is to be. We haven't been given all of the details. We have an amazing inheritance awaiting us, Peter tells us, imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for us. But there is just so much more about heaven that we don't know. What we do know is that when he appears, we will be like him because we will finally see him just as he is. And at that very moment, we see Jesus, either the result of our own death or the rapture of his church, John tells us we will be transformed forever to be like him. John's not saying we'll become little gods, which I have to tell you, countless false teachers out there proclaiming Jesus, that's what they teach. You become a god. But that's not what this is saying. We will never be equal to Christ. John states here that we will be like him in perfect righteousness and holiness, as we will live on in an immortal resurrected body just like his he who began that good work in you will complete it that will be the day and while alive here on this earth we are in the process of having our character transformed to be more like Christ that's the whole point of Romans 8 28 and 29 we know God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him it goes on to say being conformed to the image of Christ this is the future of every believer, that we will be perfectly like Christ one day. We will have perfect character. We'll have a body not bound by time or space, not a body that ever deals with pain or death again. For now, we have the responsibility, though, to walk in a manner that pleases him as he slowly chips away at all those rotten attitudes and responses and actions that we have in our lives. Because he's conforming us more and more to be like Christ. He could have had us die the moment we came to him and just taken us home. That would have been quick. But he chooses to leave us here to carry on ministry for him and to grow in holiness. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. So knowing that you will stand before Jesus one day at the Bema seat, knowing the incredible hope that a believer has for their future, this ought to motivate us to grow and to strive for personal purity and godly living. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home in heaven or absent, stuck here on earth, 
to be pleasing to him. So what is, the, I know I ask this every week, but what is it that drives you? I mean, we all have some type of ambition, something we're hoping to be, to do, to accomplish. Is your ambition to simply be healthy, to avoid pain, to have things, to be happy? Don't get sidetracked from what really matters to God. God is more concerned about you being holy than you being happy. This world is not our home. God's goals for his children is that they become more and more like him in their character, more forgiving, more patient, more kind, more serving, more loving. And this is what ought to drive us in this life as we wait for his appearance or the moment we are suddenly with him. So we go on to the nature of sin. And we see everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The point John is making is that sin is a purposeful disregard for God's authority. It is active rebellion to what his will is. Sin is doing whatever you want. And the result is we end up becoming a law unto ourselves. Children of God don't live lawless lives because now they are under the authority of Jesus. A true believer is surrendered to Christ as their Lord and committed to following him in his ways. You know, what he, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus died, clearly, to take away our sins. John's point is that every true believer understands that Jesus has the, removed the guilt of our sins in his death. So then how could we continue living sinful, lawless lives? To come to Christ, a person has to be broken over their sin. They must repent. They must long to be forgiven. So true believers understand what is best, that it is best to be set free from their guilt and from their heavy burden of sin. Therefore, they don't want to practice living a lifestyle like that. They want to practice righteousness. So believers practice righteousness because they have a relationship with Christ. In verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Those who know Christ do not live a continuous lifestyle of sin. The tense of the word that's used here for sin is in the present tense, which means continual, continuous sinning. Believers no longer habitually practice ongoing rebellion and defiance because Christ has changed our sinful heart and given us a new nature that now wants to obey him. And Jesus is the source of all of our righteousness. Notice what John says in verse 7. Make sure no one deceives you. Clearly, John is addressing these false teachers of the Gnostics that believe that because all matter was evil and the spirit isn't connected to the body, then it didn't matter how you live. So in other words, your body is just evil, but your spirit, you know, that's the good part of you, but they're not connected. So you can do whatever you want with your body. That was the Gnostics teaching. John makes it clear that those who claim they know Christ and live ungodly with their bodies are not believers. There have always been teachers who are deceptive, who say that holiness is not connected to being a believer. You hear that by speakers all the time too. It's the same as countless teachers who encourage people, trust Christ so you can go to heaven. Do you want to go to heaven? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Then pray this prayer with me. Now you're going to heaven. But they never talk about repenting. They never talk about dying and putting to death your flesh or hating your sin. They actually deny the very gospel they think they're proclaiming. 
Every believer is given a new nature, a divine nature, at the moment they put their trust in Christ. And practicing righteousness doesn't make you a Christian. It simply reveals the fact that you are. Now, we're always going to struggle with sin as long as we're on planet Earth and in this body. But our true desire is to live in a way that is consistent with what God's word tells us. If Christ lives within you and has given you his nature, then there is a desire to live righteous. If there isn't, then he doesn't live in you. This is in complete contrast to the one who practices sin. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Satan is the source of sinful practices that all believers, unbelievers follow in his steps. He darkens the minds of unbelievers, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. And Jesus made it clear in John 8 that all unbelievers are children of the devil because they share the same sinful nature. He is the original source of rebellion and pride. But Jesus changed all of this. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus died, he destroyed Satan's power over us so that we are no longer dominated by Satan in our lives. Tempted to be sure. Stalked, attacked by him to be sure. But he no longer has any power to hold us captive to follow him. Verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. The seed planted in every single believer is the life of Jesus. That happens again at the moment of our salvation. We have no idea it happened. And that is why there is a radical change in our lives when we become a new creation in Christ. We still struggle with sin, but we no longer practice sin in an unbroken, unrepented of lifestyle. Grape seeds are always going to produce grapes. Apples are going to produce apple seeds. Oranges, orange seeds, and Christ's seed will produce righteous behavior in a believer. By this, the love of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So we are known by our fruit. Either you are a child of God with his divine nature in you, or you are still a child of the devil. Which, of course, nobody thinks that, nobody believes that, but that's still what scripture says. If your life is, is your life characterized by righteousness or not? Again, John's point, give yourself the test. Now, the children of Satan and the children of God. The moment a person comes to Jesus for salvation, they no longer have hatred in their heart that they once had towards others. It's a complete change of heart. We once were totally self-centered, couldn't stand other people who did something we didn't like. But as a new creation, now we care about other people. We love them. None of us here have to be convinced of non-believers' hatred of others, especially evident this week in our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes this point. This is the life of the world. I need not press it. Is it not true? Listen to people's conversations. You do not know them, but listen to them as they are talking about somebody else. Listen to the spite. Listen to the malice. Listen to the envy. Look at their eyes. There is murder in them. They may not actually commit murder, but the principle is there. I am not condemning such poor people. I am sorry for them. Look at the faces of the people who are always criticizing somebody else. Look at them. They cannot see themselves. That is the tragedy. If only they saw the ugliness and the venom. End of quote. In this next section, John makes very clear the distinction between unbelievers that he refers to as being of the evil one and abiding in death and being a murderer. 
And this is in contrast to believers who love the brethren and demonstrate their love by having a heart of compassion to meet a need of a fellow believer. With this test, a believer can have assurance of salvation by examining their lives to see how it is they respond to fellow Christians. Genuine believers lay down their lives for other believers. And in the case of unbelievers, their true nature is simply revealed by the way they and their father feel towards Christians. They hate them. So for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So the contrast is clear. True believers follow Jesus' love and humility. We are to follow our master by loving people in tangible ways, by building others up with our words, not cutting them down, by forgiving others when they hurt us. This is in complete contrast with the unbeliever. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Speaking of brothers, John decides to give a very negative example of the failure of a brother to love, even his own physical brother. Both Cain and Abel worshipped God. Both brought a sacrifice to God. With Cain, it was only an outward worship because he had no heart love for God. God rejected Cain's offering, and he accepted Abel's offering. And God has revealed that he was to be approached, in some way he revealed this to them, with only a blood sacrifice. That was the only acceptable way to be approached. But Cain didn't care what God said. No, I've got my way. You know, I till the ground, so I'm going to bring what I do. He was going to worship God in his own way, the way he thought best. Cain, like many, was religious, but completely lost. He invented his own man-made religion while he rejected what God said. This is not, God says, I am Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me, but, you know, through no other name. There's no other way. But people in religion say, no, 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 no. There's many ways. They deny, they make up their own religion, like Cain. <clears throat> so he had his own religion. He rejected what God said. And when God rejected Cain's offering, he became angry at God. And instead of repenting and going, What was I thinking? I should have never done that. No, he was totally defiant to God. And his anger then was taken out on his brother Abel, and he slew him. Why such a reaction? John tells us in this verse, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The word slew his brother speaks of slaughtering an animal, cutting the throat or butchering it. So Cain's hatred was so severe towards his brother That in total defiance of God, who rejected him for not bringing the animal sacrifice, Cain slit his brother's throat. Cain's rebellious heart seems to be saying to God, you want a blood sacrifice? Here's a blood sacrifice. It's my brother. John's point is that this is the way unbelievers are today. Cain resented his brother's righteous behavior. Abel had obeyed what God said, and Cain resented it because it exposed him as a rebel, as ungodly. And he felt guilty, and Cain hated him for it. So he literally butchered his brother. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Cain is an illustration of the world of unbelievers who hate believers. Cain was the first of many throughout millions throughout human history to reveal the true heart of Satan's children. In truth, nothing about mankind or human nature has changed since the time of Cain. Resentment of godliness is the reason the religious leaders killed Jesus. He revealed their hypocrisy. 
And like Cain, they pretended they worshiped God in their own way while they rejected what God actually told them. John 15, Jesus makes it clear that the world hates us because Christ has taken us out of the world and its system and transformed our character so that now we have new attitudes, new desires, new morals, new ethical standards of right and wrong, new values, new interests. We don't redefine what God has already clearly defined. And because it is so very different from the world's attitude and behavior, they're offended by this truth because it condemns them. It makes them feel guilty and they don't like that. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, Timothy was told. And Jesus said, blessed are you who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we need only look at the reaction of people towards those uh, who make any stand for biblical truth. What happens in our culture? Well, they're hated, they're blackballed, they're brought to court, they're maligned, they're mocked. And none of this should be a surprise. Persecution from the world and persecution from organized religion in particular is just like Cain. They think they're worshiping God, doing it on their own terms, their own way, but are only religious and lost. Cain hated Abel because Abel obeyed God. So the test we have seen causes us to ask the question, are we like Cain, religious, going to God on our own terms, our own way? but lost or are we like Abel a genuine believer coming to God as he tells us comes back to the question if we love other believers humbly and serve them or do we despise them that brings us to the love of Christians as evidence in salvation we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren he keeps hammering this home he who does not love abides in death so the marker test To know if you're truly saved is that you have a love for God's people. If you do not love other believers, then you still are dead in your trespasses. And that's the condition of every human heart when we're born. We're all in rebellion to God. We all just love ourselves and want our own way. We don't care about other people. All of us are born dead in our sins. All of us are born completely separated by God, from God. And we pass out of that situation of death into life the moment of our salvation because Jesus makes our dead hearts have spiritual life. And the evidence that this has happened is now we love other people and believers in particular. I realize, of course, that there are Christians that are hard to love. We all know them. They may have an unpleasant, prickly personality. The kingdom of God is made up of all kinds. (laughs) And we may struggle with liking them as, you know, people. But to love is different because love looks beyond what you do or do not like about a person. I love what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, to love those whom we do not like means that we treat them as if we did like them. To choose to act kindly toward them even though we do not like them. So I remind you, love is an action. You know, it's not just a sentiment. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is long-suffering. It doesn't hold a record of wrongs. Love is doing, doing, doing. Loving others is to be the pattern of how we live our lives. But by complete contrast, the non-believer hates the followers of Jesus. He writes, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John's not talking about that momentary lapse of sin when we have anger towards someone. Rather, John here is referring to those who continue to harbor hateful attitudes with no remorse and no repentance. Hatred and anger have become their way of life. And I know we've all met people like that. They're still living with what happened 50 years ago like it happened yesterday. And they've lived every day 
through that lens. That is their view of life. Everything is through their hatred. And they tend to view all of life that way, through their anger. And they may never carry out physical murder of the person that they're angry at, but the attitude in their heart is the same as one who murders. John is not saying that a true believer is incapable of murder. Certainly that has happened where a Christian has murdered someone. Someone takes their own life, they're murdering themselves. They've fallen by Satan's temptation into a state of despair to not even think with clarity. John's not talking about a person whose life is characterized by murderous thoughts. Or rather, John is talking about a person whose life is characterized by murderous thoughts and deeds that reveal they simply are not a believer. But love is seen in Christ-like sacrifice. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to also lay down our lives for the brethren. So, as a true believer, we have come to know the meaning of love from Jesus and his love for us. He died in our place. He gave the highest level of self-sacrifice ever. The supreme example, example of hatred is Cain, because he took his brother's life. But Jesus is the supreme example because he gave his life on behalf of sinners. He is our example of how to love. I mean, he loved all of us. He loved the people crucifying him. <laughs> He forgave them. Like Jesus, we are to be willing to lay down our lives. In other words, we are to love to such an extent that we're even be willing to lay down our physical lives if necessary. That would certainly be a rare occurrence to happen. The more common way to love the brethren is in our daily sacrifice of our time, our energy, in order to benefit somebody, giving up money, our preference of what we want to do because we want to show love. And I have to say, the perfect place that God chips away and helps, you know, develop this in us is in our home with the people we live with, right? That is the perfect setting for this type of love to grow and flourish, that you serve your husband, you serve your children, you go out of your way, you bend over backwards, you deny yourself what you would rather do because you are loving your family. And then that love is to spill into all of God's family. This mindset is to be the norm among believers in the body of Christ. John goes on to point out that if you actually have the world's goods and you see a brother in need uh, and you don't do anything, how does the love of God abide in you? It doesn't. As one Bible teacher put it, as life does not dwell in the murderer, love does not dwell in the miser. So we learned in James to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. We are to show love by specific, tangible acts of kindness let us not love with word or with tongue but in deed and in truth love requires action it doesn't just talk about meeting a need, about a person's need it actually you know meets the need that brings us to the love of brethren assures us that we are in the truth so john makes the point that if your life is characterized by loving other believers then this is the evidence that you are born again unbelievers do not love god's children as we've just seen Our hearts, he says, can be assured. In other words, they can be persuaded that we really are a true believer. And this also has a thought of that we can be at rest and have a calmness because we are his own. For most people in the world, the thought of meeting God, the moment of death, is terrifying. Because they don't even know if they've rejected him, believed in him, what's going to happen. They should be terrified. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But for the believer who loves other believers, their heart is not fearful because they know they can stand before him with confidence because every sin has been paid for. 
John goes on to point out that in whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. So he's telling us that we can have assurance of our salvation, even when our hearts condemn us about not being as loving as we ought to be. This is, in, this is possible because God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything going on in our heart anyway. And though we may struggle with conviction when we have had a lack of love in certain situations and when we have failed him miserably, we still have assurance of salvation because even though there are times when we are unloving, there are plenty of times when we have truly loved other believers. We will know this, we will know by this that our love for other, for other Christians, that's that we are in the truth. That's how we know we're in the truth. When we fail to love as we ought to love, as a believer, we hate it. We feel bad about it. We repent. We ask for forgiveness. And this is why we must continually preach the gospel message to ourselves. We cannot let our minds camp out and dwell and live on our sins and focus on that. Instead, we must choose to think about the times when we did demonstrate love. That love didn't come from you. It didn't originate with you. It was produced by you in, the, in you through the Spirit of God, which proves you are his child. One pastor put it this way, John is not saying that we are to indulge our feelings of doubt or encourage introspection. We are not even to pray about the matter. We are not even to let go and let God, as some say. We are to seize our minds and by the grace of God, turn ourselves around. And we are to do that by focusing on specific past acts of divine love. End of quote. So John brings further comfort in verse 20 when he says, you take comfort in the fact that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So when the Lord convicts you of your sin, take comfort in the truth that his, he is greater than your heart and he knows all about your sin anyway. He knows your every failure, but he has taken care of all of those sins by placing them on Jesus and saving us. So at the proof of... The proof of salvation is a transformed life that demonstrates his love for other believers. So he sees and he knows the true desires of your heart, even when you blow it. He is the one who has put that desire to love in your heart. So if you examine your heart and see that you do love others, that you do sacrifice for believers, you do genuinely care about God's people, you can rest in the truth. You really are his child. So if your sins rise up to condemn you, then preach the truth of the gospel message to yourself. That's why Jesus died. And be at peace knowing God is greater than your sinful accusations against yourself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these tests that John has given us. I thank you for also instructing us to understand why there is such hatred and animosity. And our culture is, that's what it's consumed by these days and we can have a better understanding why <clears throat> the heart of man has always hated righteousness from the beginning and I pray that we will stand strong and stand firm <clears throat> on what we know is to be true and not be intimidated that we will continue to stand for your standards and continue to grow in love and demonstrate love to others Lord you said that people will know we are Christians by our love so I pray that each one of us here would be a light and the people that cross shoulders and rub shoulders with us, that they would see something vastly different in how we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.